In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll continue with the uh, hymn of the month, Not All the Blood of Beast. Not all the blood of beast on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay its hand on that dear head of thine, while as a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. My soul looks back to see the burden thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree I know my guilt was there. Believing we rejoice to see the curse removed we bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. All right, we'll continue with the um, Bible memory work from the Catechism. This is uh, the Table of Duties addressed to the youth, to the youth of the church. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God approaches and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. 1 Peter 5, 5 to 6. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. In Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. The uh, kids can head off to Sunday school. All right. Um, so one thing to point out about this hymn is uh, stanza three, my faith would lay its hand on that dear head of thine, while as a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. So the image here is interesting because, of course, um, when... the like we talked about last week, this comparing Old Testament sacrifice to, to the New Testament sacrifice of Christ. And when uh, the priest would sacrifice in the Old Testament, of course, they would put their hands on the animal, right? They'd have to, right? They'd have to put the animal on the altar to, to slay the animal. And uh, here the image is that we put, we put our hand, my faith,
puts its hand on Christ, right? On the head of Christ. And as a penitent, I stand in there, confess my sin. Now, what's um, interesting about that is, first of all, that this reminds me of Peter's sermon in Acts 2, right? Where he says, um, and you crucified the Lord, right? That it's, it's our sin that causes Christ to have to be put on the altar of the cross. And so we put our hand on that, right? We're, we're involved in that in some way, right? The second thing, though, that's interesting is that this is what our faith lays hold of. And um, that we, in some sense, have to put our hand on the crucified Christ, right? We must reach out to him. And um, there's a, a great reversal of this. This is kind of the final thing that, that I was thinking of in, in the liturgy, uh, specifically in the right of uh, – it's in a couple places, but specifically in the right of individual confession and absolution, the pastor puts his hand on the head of the sinner, of the penitent, right, and, and forgives his sin. And – this, this happens in a couple places too, right? So um, one place is, is kind of Ash Wednesday, right, which you just had, right, where the, the pastor puts the cross on the head of the person. Um, but also today and, and last week as well, which we'll see, is in, in the baptism rite, there's a place during the Lord's Prayer where the pastor puts his hand on the head of the the, the um candidate for baptism and during the Lord's Prayer. And so this, um, the, the other really important place this happens, by the way, is, sorry, they keep popping into my head, <laughs> is uh, at ordination, right? During the Lord's Prayer, um, all the pastors lay, put the laying on of hands during the Lord's Prayer on the, on the person being ordained, right? And then, of course, the, um, the person performing the rite of ordination also puts his hand on the on the head of the ordinand. Um, there's a fancy word I bet you didn't know, ordinand. Um, the, during the ordination as well. But um, this idea of the the kind of laying on of hands, right, is is here in this the stanza of this hymn. And it's a nice kind of twist on what we normally see in the liturgy, right? What we normally see in the liturgy is a blessing by the ha- a hand on the head but um, here we say our faith puts its hand on the head of the crucified Lord. So kind of a nice reversal there. All right. Any questions or thoughts about that? Let's go into the book of Nahum. So to kind of catch us up here, the... Reason we're in Nahum now, I know it seems like we're jumping a little bit over throughout the prophets and whatnot, but there is a method to the madness. And um, what we've done over the last couple years here is, well, we've been through Old Testament history, but since we entered the, the period of the divided kingdom, we went through, uh, we had the northern kingdom, right? Uh, which the northern kingdom is Israel. And we went through its kings, and then we went through... uh, Did we do its prophets next? I don't even remember now. Anyway, we went through the northern kingdom's uh, kings and prophets, and then the southern kingdom's kings and prophets, which is Judah, right? And... Now we've kind of finished that. Um, we, we just finished up Judah's prophets. And what we're looking at now is um, the post-exile prophets. So some of the prophets we just did are kind of both pre- and post-exile. They kind of happened during the exile, right, of the, the Babylonian exile specifically with Judah. But now we're going back to the um, 
to to the prophets and pick and doing all the books of the Bible, the rest of the prophets that we haven't covered yet, that in the chronology of the Bible are specifically post-exile prophets. So that they prophesy after the the exiles. So remember the exile for the northern kingdom was the exile um, from that happened when they were taken over by the people of Assyria, by the Assyrian Empire. And then, of course, what we've been talking about a lot more is the Babylonian exile with the southern kingdom of Judah. But um, Nahum is – the reason I kind of bring that up to remind you is that Nahum is part of the uh, northern kingdom more so. And he prophesies after the Assyrian exile, right? So it's a little bit separate from what's going on in Babylon, but he prophesies uh, his post post Assyrian exile for the Israelites for the Northern Kingdom. So this is kind of going way back to where uh, we were. Maybe I, if I went back and did things again, I'd do them in a different order. But that's that's where we're at in the Old Testament history. So hopefully that kind of catches us up somewhat. Yeah, so Steve. That's like a hundred years. Or the Babylonian exile? Yeah, um, closer to cut 200 years or so. So the date for um, this, if you remember, uh, let's see, the destruction of the temple was no, you're about a hundred, no, about a hundred years. You're right, yeah. The destruction for the temple was 587 BC, and this is um, a little, Nahum's written a little less than a hundred years before that. So um, the Babylonian exile hasn't happened yet. So we're going back in time a little bit. Yeah, do you have that sheet in front of you? What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, uh, Israel into Assyrian captivity is 722 BC, and Judah yeah. is 586 BC. Right, okay. So this happens in the middle of the, that, those two events, right? So um, this is after the Assyrian exile, but before. So the date for Nahum is somewhere between 663 and 612 BC. And um, the reason that that is the date, or we we can kind of date it in there, is because um, he talks about how uh, Thebes has already fallen to the Assyrians in in Egypt um, as a past event, which happened in 663. And then he talks about um, what the main topic of Nahum is, is the fall of Nineveh which happens in 612 BC, and he's prophesying that in the future. So somewhere between those two events, um, we can recognize that, that those are probably the dates there. All right. So, um, that's a, did that. okay. Nahum, the, the word Nahum means comforter. Which is um, interesting, I think, here, because the comfort that Nahum brings is not what we normally think of of traditional comfort, right? Normally, when we think of kind of Bible comfort, right, what do we think of? Like forgiveness of sins, um, peace that surpasses all understanding, right? Hope of the resurrection, things like that, right? The, the comfort that Nahum is going to bring is really a comfort of vindication. And this is something we've talked about a lot in the kings and prophets of the Old Testament is this idea that the Lord vindicates his people, right? And that the people, God's people do suffer unjustly and need to be vindicated, right? They need to see that their Lord fights for them and makes things right in the end. Okay, so we'll see how that kind of plays out. All right, so uh, one of the interesting things about Nahum, I mean, it's just worth noting at least, is that he's uh, called an Ekloshite. And we don't really know exactly where the land of Eklo was, um, or Elkosh, or whatever it, the city was. He's an Ekloshite. Um, but it is, I, I, the theory that I kind of like is that this is the same place, um, which geographically it wouldn't make sense to be around. Um, this is in the Northern kingdom, uh, what, and what the Northern kingdom turns into eventually is that this would, uh, possibly be the place, uh, called 
later in the New Testament called Capernaum. And the reason that is possible, possibly the case is that after the Israelites return to um, their land and, and get to rebuild... Uh, the the word Capernaum literally means the village of Nahum, right? You can see N A U M there, um, right? If you that you kind of take the H out, right? The the Capernaum means the village of Nahum. So possibly they renamed the city after him, after the prophet, which that would be nice, right? I mean, if if I was a descendant of Nahum, I, I would think that was nice, at least. I don't know. But um, Capernaum is interesting, right? Because Capernaum, does, does anyone remember the, the major significance of Capernaum in the New Testament? This is the center of Jesus' ministry, right? So um, it's up by the on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, it's where he first starts calling disciples. And it really throughout his ministry, his three-year ministry, that's his, like, home base right it's not his home right uh, it's not nazareth but it's uh it's his kind of home base where he operates right it's where um P- peter's house peter's mother-in-law's house is and where he he kind of just seems to be operating right and a lot of his preaching happens at the sea of galilee right so um it's kind of the central area there all right um so it's it's possible that, and and there would be some significance there, right? That if the pro, the the place of Nahum, right, is the center of Jesus' ministry, right? You can you can implicitly see there that Jesus is in a way connecting himself to the prophet Nahum, right? That that and that part of Jesus' ministry is this message of vindication. All right. So what is this uh, all about, right? All right, so the book of Nahum, the prophet, the prophecy of Nahum, is all about Nineveh and and Assyria as a whole. Now, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Okay, so I know we've been spending a lot of time on Babylon, but Assyria was an absolutely great kingdom and empire, right? Before, like, Assyria was the Babylon before Babylon. Eventually, Assyria got destroyed by the Babylonians, which is exactly what the book is about. But um, before that, Assyria was one of these major empires, right? Before Assyria was Egypt, Egypt was kind of the first big empire of the world, right, um, in the kind of biblical framework. But then Assyria is the next one, right? Assyria is this, and Assyria is interesting, right, because they're the first, in some ways they're the first, uh, I mean, Egypt definitely does too, but some of the things that Assyria does, what we would consider the first uses of like modern warfare, um, some of the tactics that they use and like when they go and, and um, take over a village, separating the people from each other and and then um, y- the use of like vassal cities and, and these types of things. Assyria is really the first kingdom to do this and they're very strong. And if you remember way back when uh, Assyria are the people who take over the uh, people of Israel, right? They're the they're the tool of God's punishment for the northern kingdom, and and remember, of course, the northern kingdom Israel was much more wicked than the southern kingdom. I mean, they were both wicked by the end of their by the time of their captivity, but Assyria or the Israel was much more wicked than Judah, and that they had no good kings, and they fell earlier on in history because of how much more wicked they were, right? So Assyria is this um, mighty tool of God's punishment that he brings upon Israel. Now, Nineveh is the capital city of that. Now, where else do you see Nineveh in the Bible? Jonah. Jonah. Jonah comes to Right. 
And we, we did talk about Jonah a long time ago, if you remember, in uh, Israel's prophets. Now, what's interesting about Jonah is Jonah happens a lot earlier on, right? So Jonah happens while Israel is still a functioning state and while uh, Assyria is growing in its power. Now, what happens in, in the book of Jonah? What happens to Nineveh? They repent. They repent. They're a wicked city, and they they repent. And it it sounds like by the end of that book, right, that they're going to be you know a Christian nation, right, or a Christian city. And what we find out in Nahum is that that didn't last, right? Because when Nahum talks about Nineveh a couple hundred years later, they are back to their old ways and even worse than they were before. Right. And so you get uh, Nahum and Jonah are really opposites or contrasting in this way is that Nahum presents Nineveh as this wicked city that is going to be punished by God, where Jonah is this uh, Nineveh is this wicked city that J- Jonah would like to see punished by God. Right. Jonah wishes he was Nahum. But he, he's not. He, Nahum hasn't even been born yet. But um, but in Jonah, God is gracious and merciful to the Ninevites and uh, brings them re, uh, to repentance and, and to faith in him. But that doesn't last. Right. So. And, and there is uh, there is definitely some application there. Right. I think. um that one thing you can see there simply is that people can fall away from faith, right? So, um, of course, our Calvinist friends would say something like, well, they were never really saved to begin with. Um, but we'd say, no, they really did repent in sackcloth and ashes, right? They really did come to faith. And unfortunately, just because someone comes to faith at one point doesn't mean that they're not going to fall away at another point, right? And faith does need to be fed, right? It can't, and and maybe this is one of the sad things about Jonah, right? Is that what Jonah really should have done is continue to preach to them. And Jonah is left off with this, um, you know, this kind of sad and, and kind of this unknown question mark, right? Where Jonah goes in, he, he yells out a one-sentence sermon into the city. They hear it. They repent by God's great mercy and power. And then Jonah goes off and sulks. And um, we're kind of left with Jonah sulking at the end of that book, right? Um, where When we have the whole thing about you know Jonah um, sitting under the, the tree for shade and and God causes the the caterpillar to eat it up, right? And all the, these things. Um, and and Jonah is kind of left off with this question mark. But but really, what Jonah should have done, right, is preach to them repentance, and then continued to feed their faith, right? Continued to preach to them, and and bring them a priest, right? And you know, bring them into the fold. But uh, he doesn't do that, of course, and. And and whether it's because of that or because of their own uh, weakness, the Nineveh does not stay faithful, right? And we see this other times in the Old Testament too. Um, this happens with the uh, in Daniel with the three men in the fire furnace, right? Um, Nebuchadnezzar uh, says af- after that whole incident, right? Truly, this is the true God, right? And uh, everyone should repent. And, and Daniel and the lions, then too, right? Um, they, the kings, the the kings of Babylon will recognize for a minute and call people to repentance. But then, of course, we see throughout the course of history that doesn't maintain, right? And so this is a um, this is a good plug, really, for the continuing to go to church, right? Because you can't just um, repent once and then say, you know, have this 
and we, I see this um, all the time in churches uh, that are a little more on the uh, spectrum of like being I don't, I don't know how to say this exactly, but like being based on more like emotions, right? So, um, I, actually, a friend was just texting me last night about he's worried that his um, one of his friends is going to this church and he was sending me videos from their website and they it was like these big baptism they call them like baptism parties or something where they'd have a bunch of people riled all riled up and they're gonna um you know of course this is people who think baptism is symbolic but they're gonna you know jump in the water and splash around and they're gonna like you know pump their fist and there's a bunch of emotional music and um you know they're all going to get baptized and they're on on fire for Jesus and i i think that kind of way of thinking about the faith and repentance is dangerous because it's totally based on like this one emotional event right and then what happens when those emotions go away and what happens when the excitement of that ends right you need something that's sustaining. You need something that's going to continue to feed you throughout your life. And um, Nineveh obviously didn't get that, right? So anyway. All right. Um, now, uh, one more final thing of intro. Uh, this is a, the way Nahum is kind of organized, very similar to Lamentations like we just talked about, is that there's a collection of three poems. It's a very short book. Um, by the way, if you want to find it in your Bible at some point, it's uh, before Habakkuk and after Micah. I probably should put those the other way. It's after Micah and before Habakkuk. Um, so you're kind of, if you go to the New Testament and then flip back a few pages, um, you're in the Minor Prophets, and then you're just looking for um, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and you'll maybe you'll find it in there. Um, you will find it in there, I should say. Yeah. Not maybe, but... Yeah. Um, it's like it's like three it's like maybe two, one or two three pages so it's a little bit hard to find. It's barely three. <laughs> yeah, depends on two depends on the size of your print. Yeah. Um, but three three poems, and so very similar to Lamentations, one poem per chapter, and um, also kind of similar to Lamentations. Chapter one is semi acrostic, so we had acrostic poems last week. Right, with Lamentations. Um, we do have a semi-acrostic poem, which is basically that uh, there's um, 15 verses in chapter 1. Remember the Hebrew uh, alphabet is 22 verses, and so there's a number of letters that it skips. But it does basically go in order where um, each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, somewhat in order of the alphabet. So kind of what we'd call like semi-acrostic there. So just worth noting um, because we talked about that with Lamentations. Um, but these are, these are poems. Um, unlike Lamentations, these are not laments, right? These are um, uh, more prophecy poems, if you will. And they're, again, specifically the topic here is about the destruction or the downfall of Nineveh. Right, so this is about how the um, the Lord is going to bring the downfall of this wicked people who have been evil to Israel, and this is something we've talked about many times before. Is that despite the fact that the Lord uses the wickedness of people like Assyria and Babylon to punish Israel and Judah? that does not mean that he excuses the wickedness, right? So just because he'll use the armies of, of Nineveh and the armies of um, the Chaldeans and Babylon to destroy his people, in a sense, right, to punish them, that doesn't mean that he's not also going to destroy them one day, right? No wickedness is excused, and so we get both in the Bible. We get the um, punishment of God's people, but we also get the punishment of the wicked people who um, are wicked towards God's people, right? So God is the only one who can do this, right? 
he can use wickedness for his good purposes and then also punish that wickedness. The wicked can't win. Right. The wicked <laughs> cannot win um, with God. He's perfectly just. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, main themes here. So sorry if you wanted to write any of that down. All right. What main themes are we looking at? Well, kind of like we were just talking about, right? We're looking at God's judgment of evil. God's judgment of evil. That like we just said, the the evil cannot win, right? He will judge evil. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but he will carry out punishment, right? And even if that's not till the last day, he will carry out that punishment, right? So it's not until after Israel goes into exile and that... Um, they have been in exile that he allows Babylon to come and destroy Assyria. Right? And it's, notice that it's a, even, it's a, excuse me, even a little more complicated than we said because he uses Assyria to punish Israel. He uses Babylon to punish Assyria and, and uses Babylon to punish Judah and then will eventually punish and then uses the uh, Persians to punish Babylon, right? And he also does eventually uh, in some way punish uh, Persia too, right? That empire falls as well, right? And one of the things you can see there with that kind of um, collapsing empire upon collapsing empire upon collapsing empire, defeating one another, defeating one another, and how the prophets specifically say this is by God's hand, is that no human empire is ever going to last, right? And, And really what this is building up to in the scope of the of biblical history is the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. That's the kingdom that actually lasts, right? All these, all these other kingdoms eventually fall, right? One way or the other. All right. Um, another thing we get here is the preservation of the remnant or of God's faithful. Right, that despite the fact that he did carry out punishment on the people of Israel, there were people in Israel that were saved. There was a faithful remnant. Right, God had preserved his people to be a faithful remnant for uh, to, to last. Right, and, and these people are the ones who need vindication. Right, these people are the ones who need to know that their faithfulness uh, was not in vain, right? That the Lord did remain faithful to them and will punish the ones who carried out wickedness upon them. All right, and then uh, finally, this kind of goes with everything we just said, um, working all together for good. To borrow a phrase from Romans 8. Right, that like like we said, the Lord is the only one who can do this. He can take um, a lot of people's wickedness and over the course of history work it out for the good of his people. Right. And um, this is just I mean, to me this is perhaps one of the biggest themes throughout the entire Old Testament is that what man means for evil, God works together for good. And that we always need to keep that in mind, right? That um, we don't always understand all the wickedness that happens on this earth and the wickedness that happens to us and the evil that happens to us. But on the last day, God will turn everything right, right? This is that that phrase throughout the prophets, the day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord is the day when everything is made right. And the day of the Lord is coming. Okay. Now, uh, outline, this is uh, pretty simple because like, just like Lamentations, it's just three chapters and each chapter is kind of its own thing. Uh, the first chapter is about God's power and will. That God has the power to bring destruction upon Nineveh and this is his will. 
Chapter 2 is specifically about the fall of Nineveh. And then um, chapter 3 zooms out to the entire kingdom of Assyria. And this is about Assyria's downfall. Right? So we have the fall of Nineveh is this microcosm as the capital city of Assyria as for the entire empire. Right? So you have the fall of the city, which is um, then followed by the fall of the entire empire. All right, so let's just uh, take a moment here to look at a few key passages. So uh, chapter 1, we'll look at verses 1 through 8 and also verse 15. All right, uh, I'll just uh, read here. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Ekloshite. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. I'm reading out of the KJV for some reason, so just bear with me. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, right? We got this kind of famous um, repetition here of, uh, I think the first time this appears, the Lord is slow to anger, is in um, the golden calf incident, right? And the, the... Moses and the prophets pick up on this throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this, the psalmist and all that. So, Anyway, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, right? So notice here, uh, Nahum switches up a little bit because normally it's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Um, Nahum says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, right? So the, the theme here is not um, his mercy as much as it is his power. And will not at all acquit the wicked right this is exactly what we've been saying right he will not let wickedness um go unpunished the lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet he rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and dryeth up all the rivers bashan uh, bashan languisheth and carmel the flower of lebanon languisheth the mountains quake at him and the hills melt And the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. So there we have the, the remnant, right? He knows his people who trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Okay, so what we see here really is a hearkening back to creation, that the Lord is the one who created all of this to begin with, right? And I I like that, um, was that verse 3 or so? Uh, The the wind in in his way is the wind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So if you look up at the storm clouds, Right. That's just like the like God's like the the dust. You know, if you walk around barefoot for a little bit and you kind of get some like dirt on the bottom of your feet. Right. That's just like the clouds for God. Right. So he's got everything in his control. Right. And the the wind and the waves obey him. Right. Just as Christ shows us in the Gospels. All right. And so he he's able to to use um, creation itself. Right as a punishment, right? So things like natural disasters, but um, even more so, obviously, he can, as as the almighty creator, um, no one can escape his wrath, right? No one can escape his ability to punish, right? So um, only those that have faith, that trust in him, will be safe, right? So faith is the thing that saves, And then uh, verse 15, uh, I was going to bring this up. Um, This is kind of interesting, by the way. So, behold upon the the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. Okay, so he steals, um, or I shouldn't say steals, him him and Isaiah have the same prophecy here, right? So I think this is Isaiah 53. Um, uh, Blessing are the, or um, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Mm. 
right? And so this is the gospel, and this is a messianic promise, right? Because it's the feet of Jesus that ultimately bring the good news. Um, and what's interesting here is he calls out to Judah, right? So remember, this is about Nineveh, and he's in Israel. He's in the northern kingdom. But he calls out to Judah, O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. So one, I think Nahum's kind of warning Judah because he's seen what's happened in Israel. And he's warning the southern kingdom about what's going to happen. But he's also kind of prophesying about the future of Judah as well. And one of the things that this shows is that God's power and will is true and and powerful and happens in all ages, right? It's happened already in Israel. It is happening. It's going to happen with Nineveh, and it's also going to happen with Judah, right? It's true past, present, and future. So it's interesting he brings up the, the southern kingdom there as well. All right. Let's move on to chapter 2, unless there's any questions on chapter 1. Um, you can read the rest of chapter 2, 1 there as well. I'm just trying to kind of highlight these these themes and what's going on here. We'll just look at verses 8 through 10 for chapter 2. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melteth, and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all the loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. All right, so um, the rest of the chapter is about the destruction of Nineveh, and it's about how lions are tearing it apart, and you kind of get this picture of the body, right? So you have the loins um, and the heart and the knees. And uh, the lion comes up and tears the body of Nineveh into pieces, right? So quite lovely imagery here that we have. Um, but one of the things I, I want, I chose these verses for specifically, I want to point out is, um, well, I kind of like the beginning of it too, that, that they're old like a pool of water. So, you know, water is not supposed to sit stagnant if it's going to be clean, right? So if you want clean water, you have to change you have to change the water out or you have to uh, it's got to have movement in it, right? Mm-hmm. Or else it develops all sorts of bacteria and mold and stuff. So uh, he says Nineveh's like this this pool of water, right? Which used to be refreshed, right? And I think this maybe is a, a little bit of a hearkening back to Jonah, right? Because pools of pools of water are almost always good in the in the scripture, right? You have yeah, a pool of water, a well, something that brings its life, right? But this pool of water has become stagnant, right? So I think this is maybe t- talking a little bit about the difference between Jonah and Nineveh. Um, but then, uh, stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Um, this is kind of uh, similar to like Jeremiah when Jeremiah says, they cry out, peace, peace, where there is no peace, right? They're saying they're standing, but... They're, they they can't actually stand, right? Um, and then, uh, but this, this is the one of the things I want to talk about. Um, take ye the spoil of silver, take ye the spoil of gold, right? So um, one of the things that, that God allows, which I think this is just, I don't know, it's kind of worth noting, is that the... Um, one of the things that happens whenever any place is overtaken in a military fashion in the Bible is that the victors take the spoil, right? And that's just how it works, right? So I think, um, I don't know, maybe, well, I don't want to go into all that, but yeah, the, this is just how it works, right? And the, the greatest example of this is that um, God's people are allowed to do this too, Right, and ultimately, when God's people take the spoil of something, right, and and even in this case, when you have this wicked place that's fallen, and the Lord commands by His prophecy to take the spoil of the place, that that's ultimately a sign of Christ's victory, 
right? And that uh, we are the spoils of the enemy, right? So the devil has a hold of us, right, in unbelief. But when Christ wins the victory and he takes the spoils, what are the spoils? We're the spoils, right? He takes what was the devil's and he brings us into his kingdom. And uh, that this is such a wonderful idea, right, that the, the strong man um, is defeated by the stronger man and bound in, in prison, in hell, and that he takes the victor's spoil, right, which is, which is us. So um, whenever you read about taking the spoil, right, of, of silver and gold, really what we should think about is about the resurrection, right, that in Christ's resurrection, he won, he's won the victory over sin, death, and the devil, and that he gets to take the spoil. All right, um, chapter 3, and we'll just look at verses 18 and 19, and this will be our overview of Nahum in 55 minutes, 50 minutes. All right, this is the last two verses of the of the book. Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee shall clap their hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? So basically what he's saying here is he's talking to the kings of Assyria. Right? He says, thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. So um, basically the idea here is that you had this capital city where you had your leaders, right? And now they're gone. O kings of Assyria. So do you think you're really going to last? Right? Everyone's spread out. They're in the dust. They're scattered upon the mountains. There's no way you're gathering your kingdom back together, your empire back together. There's no way this bruise is going to heal. Right? The wound is too grievous. Like you're going to bleed out. That's that's what he's saying. That, um, that what happened to Nineveh is symbolic of what's going to continue to happen to the rest of Assyria. Uh, which which happens, right? And I think um, maybe by a final way of application, right, we can kind of see this on a larger scale historically that, like I said earlier, no human kingdom is ever going to succeed, right? We can look back at Egypt and look back at Assyria and look back at Babylon and Persia and Rome and so on and so forth and see that human empires don't, succeed right they will eventually be punished they will eventually fall and the only kingdom that lasts forever is the kingdom of god right so that's the kingdom we must depend on that's the kingdom we must strive for that's the kingdom we must live in all right any final questions or thoughts on the book of nahum yeah as far as military does israel have chariots just like the Assyrians or just like the Egyptians, you know. They're, they're yeah, they're not as large. So if you look at, if you kind of go outside the Bible, like the Bible, um, this is going to sound bad, but the Bible is a little bit misleading in this way, is that the Bible is entirely focused, the Old Testament, um, and, and really the New Testament too, is focused on this little area of land right? Um, everything in the Bible kind of happens in this one area of land. Almost, not, not everything, but almost everything in the Bible happens in this one little area of land in the ancient Near East. And um, that makes it seem very large in our minds. When you look at a map of the ancient Near East, Israel is, the nation of Israel, even at its largest in the kingdom of Solomon is small, right? Like medium at best, but a small empire um, compared to Egypt, compared to Babylon, compared to Assyria, compared to Persia. Like they're just, I mean, they the one thing that they really have going for them is that they're a major crossroads, right? They're a major um, trade route, basically. Like they connect Egypt with 
everything else. Uh, but they're very, very small. And their armies are always pretty small too. And that whenever we actually read in the Bible about, um, you know, in, in Joshua and, and in the United Kingdom about with David, about them defeating these other armies, it's really incredible. They're always smaller. Because they're always smaller. So they do have, I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, I have to double check this. I'm pretty sure they do have some chariots, especially in the United Kingdom when they're at their largest. Um, I would assume that they have they have horses and, and, and whatnot, um, but never near as many as say, Egypt or Assyria or Babylon. Yeah, well, they would plot, they would take their implements they use for farming and hone them into spears. Yeah, you get this all over the place that they just kind of, they're like a, um, just kind of a thrown together army, like that sometimes they're, the, I mean, the United Kingdom, like, is more organized, but so, most of the time they're just like, uh, what, what in the judges, um, which story is it where they take uh, like their trumpets and their jars and and um, uh, how's that go? Is that a why is that escaping me? Anyway, you know it's like these kind of thrown together armies with these like kind of made up tools like or yeah just beating their um, their plowshares and the spears you know right these types of things so. Yeah, I think um, the question of chariots is interesting because that's like the sign of a very developed army. And we don't really read a lot about them having them. I mean, it's po- I think they did probably have them to some degree, but... Yeah, it, it shows that they were destroyed, but I guess we're giving God credit for that. Right. This All right. All right. Hmm. All right, let's... Uh, I was reading something here. Okay. I don't want to get, I can't get too distracted. All right, I got to go uh, organize this baptism thing. So, all right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good gifts that you give us, and we pray that you would bless our worship today, uh, especially bless uh, Everett as he is baptized in your holy name. And we pray that you would continue to be with us uh, throughout our days and weeks, especially as uh, we seek the kingdom of God, which has no end. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.